Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And for more than 10 years with SNN, I've been doing interviews with microcap management teams at investor conferences globally, as well as online. Our SNN Live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest, and then one can discover more by going to that company website. But personally, I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on that's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies, so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party product services or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Justin Kenna, CEO of GameSquare Esports Inc. It's a publicly traded company. I got two symbols for you, GSQ on the CSE and GMSQF on the OTCQB. GameSquare is an international gaming and esports company headquartered in Toronto. The company is seeking to acquire additional assets and entities serving the gaming and esports markets and more broadly in sports and entertainment. GameSquare owns a portfolio of companies, including Code Red Esports, an esports talent agency serving the UK, GCN, a digital media company focusing on the gaming and esports audience based in Los Angeles, Complexity Gaming, a leading esports organization operating in the United States, Cut and Sew and Zoned, a gaming and lifestyle marketing agency based in LA, and Fourth Frame Studios, a multidisciplinary creative production studio. Video games and playing sports online has been around forever. At least it seems that way to me as a millennial who grew up playing both. However, the idea of gaming and esports as a business is relatively new, but it is starting to get a lot of institutional support, both from a financial perspective and even from various sports leagues. In fact, Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys and probably the most well-known owner in all of sports, happens to be an investor in GameSquare. I met Justin when he participated in a gaming panel we hosted for one of our virtual events, so I invited him on to learn more about how they are approaching monetizing gaming, as well as the evolution of gaming and esports as a business, GameSquare's business model, how involved Jerry Jones and the Goff family are in GameSquare, and how the company plans to balance their growth objectives with the goal of becoming a profitable business. With that, Please enjoy my conversation with Justin Kenna, CEO of GameSquare Esports, Inc. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is Justin Kenna. He is the CEO of GameSquare Esports, Inc. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is GSQ on the CSC and GMSQF on the OTCQB. Justin, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Good, Robert. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. You know, listen, it's been a minute. We 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 were just talking offline how you know last time we chatted, you uh, you were on a panel uh, from one of our virtual events that uh, happened in December last year, talking about gaming and esports and all the different ways we can skin this cat. Um, so sure. it feels it feels December last year feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, I think when it when it comes to this industry, it it kind of is. I mean, so much is you know ever evolving and changing and and, and growing so quickly. I mean, between now and then, a whole another game could be invented and catch hold. And there, there it is. Now we got to, now we got to answer to this. But we'll dig into all of that in a bit because I, I do want to get some of your your, your insights as an industry insider and understanding all that. But we also want to talk about GameSquare. So, my first question for everyone on here is: Can you start us off with what, what's that one line that best describes GameSquare? Yeah. So. GameSquare is a, a media platform um, with diversified revenue streams that is, you know, designed to directly connect global brands with the huge and ever-growing gaming and esports communities. Very good. All right. Now let's get into a little bit of that overview and history of the company. What would you say was the original problem that GameSquare was looking to solve? And and, and and how would you say that thesis has also changed over time? I know I just threw like three questions at you, but you yeah, know, no, 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 for sure. So um, it's interesting, right? I think I was actually talking to an investor about this this morning. So you know, for, for anybody who's had uh, an investor meeting in this space, whether it's with a publisher, an, an esports org, a, a content studio, a media business, what whatever it might be, um, you see these crazy numbers, right, in terms of audience. But the issue is that uh, a lot of these orgs, specifically the esports orgs, uh, are only monetizing a, a very small percentage of, of the, you know, those numbers. Um, this, this market's extremely fragmented, right? These communities live in different spots. Of course, there is crossover, but Fortnite communities aren't necessarily Counter-Strike communities, aren't necessarily Call of Duty communities. Um, my background prior to, to GameSquare was I was a CFO of FaZe Clan, um, anybody who knows the industry knows who Face Clan is. Uh, Face is the, the largest org by audience by a really long way. Um, funnily enough, still burning cash, but um, you know, just went public recently in a SPAC deal, a, a merger through B Riley, um, at a at a billion dollar valuation, and has been performing really well in the capital markets thus far. So, um, interesting. My my time there, I think, really helped me um, formulate the whole ethos around GameSquare. And while, you know, GameSquare very much believes in esports and a future return, my my goal is by directly connecting brands with audience is really monetizing in the near term and actually, you know, being able to, to grow a publicly listed company of real revenue magnitude that is in fact profitable. Um, and we are on a trajectory to profitability. So I think in terms of, you know, your, your multi-part question. Um, in terms of solving the problem, I think the, the, the problem solving is really from a brand perspective and that is how, like, a lot of brands now, we're in a different sort of stage than we were kind of, 
you know, three, four, five years ago where brands knew that there was these big audiences, but they kind of thought, oh, gaming's just this, you know, small percentage of, of the population or, you know, it's just purely a younger audience and all of these kind of myths that have been shown to be not completely true, right, over the past four or five years. And I think what we've seen is the emergence of, of alcohol brands and other brands that you just didn't think would necessarily be playing in the gaming space now realising that they need to build out a strategy to reach this audience. Because not only is this audience, you know, this large Gen Z audience where you see, you know, roughly 40% of Gen Z's favourite pastimes either playing video games or browsing the internet, right? But there's this sort of 21 to 35-year-old age dem demographic that lives in these communities that is high disposable income and really that demographic that brands have been trying to reach for a long time. So I think overall and, and probably a bit of a long-winded way of answering is that our solution is helping those brands build out a strategy to reach a specific audience that helps their brand, right? And that is working and understanding audience intelligence in the space. What is your, your brand goal? How do you reach that audience? And then through, you know, our, our media network, we actually have a, a specific targeted media network that can, can target audience, age gate, hit certain demographics to actually help you reach that audience, you know, with your brand message. Very good. And, and thank you for that history and basically going through the thesis for GameSquare. And you know what, I, I'm thinking it also would be good for us to do right now, even take a, a step back further, because you talked a little bit about the history of gaming and esports and how, listen, we've all heard of it. I, I mean, me and you, are, I think we're probably roughly the same age. We've been playing video games since we were kids. Everybody who's listening to us, they've probably played video games at some point in their life, you know, and, and maybe, or I mean, I'm sure some are aware of how things have evolved, but for those who don't, you know, how has gaming and esports evolved to where now GameSquare is uniquely positioned to try and marry these two things, like helping these brands get in front of some of these audience members? Yeah, it's been really interesting. And I think um, for me, the, the funniest part is, you know, I played a bit of Mario Brothers and a bit of Duck Hunt with my sister back in that, uh, you know, back in the day, but my dad would come in and give me a clip over the head and say, go outside, and, you know, play sport and run around. That kind of old school mentality. It was funny. I, I had a, a lot of friends growing up that, that kind of game, but I really wasn't a gamer, which I think is has been um, somewhat of a benefit, right, in terms of actually looking at this industry from a different lens and um, really building out what I think is uh, a monetizable, sustainable business model. Right, which I think is maybe harder to do if you are, you know, a real hardcore gamer. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, uh, within our within our ecosystem, we have plenty of those who, um, and, and it's been a great learning curve. But my my experience directly, I think, is a really good kind of correlation to that growth of the industry. So um, I'm I'm Australian. I've been in the states for about seven years. I was actually running strategy and finance for a production company in, in Los Angeles. We were doing you know, a lot of uh, music videos, TV ads, online, digital, snackable content. And I was introduced to the guys at Face Clan. And it was interesting because at the time, I wasn't looking to leave my role. I was, I was loving it and working on some really cool stuff. But there's this real natural crossover between you know, this sort of content production company and gaming is gaming really as, 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 as it's continued to evolve, that lifestyle content piece has been, you know, 
hugely important and, and will continue to be. So I took a bit of a leap of faith. I met the guys at, at Phase. It was eight people working out of the house at the time, you know, like any good sort of startup story. But they had this huge audience and it was kind of this reverse strategy of, of building a business. Normally you you build out your business and your business model and your infrastructure and then you try to grow audience and actually prove out the model. This was kind of the opposite. It was this huge audience because they had these four young kids who basically came out, created content, they were gaming online and came out and said, hey, we're gamers and gaming's cool and created content that made people feel like that. And it was kind of this coming out party where, you know, a lot of people looked around the room like, yeah, we're a gamer too and maybe gaming is cool and, you know, all of a sudden athletes are gaming and it's becoming a part of mainstream. It was it was really a really interesting time. So I joined FaZe um, yeah, roughly six years ago now. Um, I was a CFO there for three years. Incredible experience and, and that evolution of the industry, as you were sort of touching on, was incredible over that time. So, you know, you were seeing at, at, you know, the, the phase was really the, the differentiator, right, instead of, in, in sort of taking just hardcore competitive esports into creating lifestyle content, right, at this kind of intersection of pop culture. Um, they, you know, competed around the world in, 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 in games, but largely, and you've still seen this to today, there's very few esports orgs, standalone esports orgs that are actually profitable. That's not to say they won't be in years to come, but, you know, still described as the Wild West a little bit. And you've sort of seen the emergence of these closed league franchises where publishers are charging you $30 million to buy a slot in a game that, you know, they're promising you a return in 10 years' time, but who's to say that that game's going to be relevant or cool or have any eyeballs in 10 years' time? So, it's been this really interesting emergence and I think that we're starting to now see publishers work much closer with the communities of games and with the orgs around, okay, we're not going to charge you $30 million. We're going to have um, you know, more favourable revenue streams and we're going to actually work with orgs that are going to commit to investing into the game and into these communities. And I think that's the right approach because you're going to see games be relevant for longer and to have closer fan engagement and, and, and audience engagement. But, but kind of touching back on, on the phase part, I think the interesting part for me from a from a commercial business standpoint was going and raising money on Bay Street in Toronto and Wall Street in New York and, you know, five, six years ago, right, where very different to today. This was, you know, before people were you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars and investing in this space and, there are a lot of questions, right, around, okay, cool, we understand there's a big audience number, but unless you're the publisher who is creating the game or running the tournament, how do you actually monetize it? And that was the really interesting piece. And, again, you've kind of seen these, these really interesting kind of inflection points. I think the emergence of Fortnite was one of those where, you know, all of a sudden on Twitch you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids watching these streamers play video games from their bedroom on a Tuesday night. And all of a sudden, these kids are making as much money streaming from their bedroom on a Tuesday night as they are traveling the world competing in tournaments. And then you've seen brands take notice because not only are these huge audience numbers consuming this content, but they're they're so engaged, right? Because I often use this example, but you go to, um, my friends say, you know, why would you watch someone else play a video game? And the reality is, like, why do you go to a Laker game in LA, right? 
you know, and, and, and even more compelling than that is that very, if you went around that crowd, it'd be a very small percentage that actually play basketball actively or have ever played basketball before. Whereas these kids that are online and they're consuming, they're so engaged because they play the game. They're learning from their stars. They're engaging directly with their stars. I mean, you can't go to a Laker game and, you know, have a shoot around with LeBron before he's playing or talk to him. and He's not giving you a shout out during the game. So really, really, really powerful stuff. And again, you know, a little long-winded, but there's so much to unpack here. The evolution has been remarkable, right? And we saw this kind of clicking point where the the white hair of Bay Street and the, 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 the white hair of Wall Street are starting to get it and you're starting to see huge amounts of money being invested in this space. And some of it was smart and a lot of it wasn't. And I think what we've tried to do is position ourselves in instead of being this speculative, sexy story, we want to build a, a, a fundamental business that, as I said, can scale and can get to profitability quickly because we're starting to see it now, you know, some pretty tough markets out there, but also some big down rounds and, you know, a lot of companies still burning cash and needing to go back and raise more capital. So the, the ethos, again, for us was really positioning ourselves at a point where we could directly connect brands and fans higher margin area, high revenue growth, extremely scalable, while still having touch points into gaming, esports, and that fandom because the authenticity in that space is extremely important. All right. So that's actually a great segue because, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to speak to you today, um, because this is our first interview on this due diligence series, talking with gaming and esports and really trying to understand the industry a lot better. And, you know, I think when I think about gaming and esports, you know, I think about a lot of the, you know, some of the other emerging sectors that have usually kind of gotten their start in micro or somewhat of their start in micro cap, you know, with cannabis, psychedelics, and even yeah. crypto to a degree. And I mean, granted, there's a little bit more regulation, maybe not so much in crypto, but there's a little bit more regulation in some of those other things. Um, so, but, but at the end of the day, you kind of understand some of those business models that have come out of those, even from the get-go with gaming and esports, you're kind of like, all right, how there's so many different ways that we can do this. And so that touches on what we have going on here at gaming at, at game square, because it seems like you kind of have a bunch of different ways in which, um, you're, you're basically, you have that, you have the complexity side, right. That has all the, the media esports, you know, building out the, the actual uh, audience numbers that you see in your presentation. I think it last one I saw from July, 2022 is like, I think 220 million. Like, uh, I, I don't even know how to measure that, what that means, yeah. but I think I'm sure we'll talk into that, but then you have the other side of the business that, as you said, seems a bit more scalable where you can now work with some of these other brands and, um, and whatnot. So let's dig into some of the business models a little bit. How does it work? How does it all work together? So yeah. now I'm being long-winded, you know, let, let, uh, let you take the floor here. There's, there's lots to unpack, so, you know, let's let's be a little long-winded and, and, and kind of dig in. So, look, I, it's, they're really good questions. Right? I, I, again, I often talk about this. It's, it's one thing to talk about these numbers, right? 220 million, great. And, and, and we'll, we'll unpack that and talk a little bit more about what does that actually mean and, and how do you monetize it. I think the second part is here is, here is what's key, right? Is having a vehicle to actually monetize that audience. And that's why GameSquare in our model is, is quite unique. And 
we have competitors in, in different parts of our business, but overall there is no model out there in the space like us. And we're starting to, to see a little bit of imitation, which is great. Um, and, and the reality is by the time anybody gets it going to any scale, they're going to be three, four, five years behind us. Um, and, and so I think the way to kind of explain it, I, I talk about it in three buckets. So bucket number one is, is our gaming and esports bucket. Um, that bucket is complexity gaming, as you touched on. Um, we have an aggregate following of uh, around 110 million when we acquired complexity in June of last year. So we've, we've had the asset for just over 12 months. Um, the aggregate following was around 10 million. They were a, a pure competitive esports org. We went and signed um, a number of really big content creators and streamers. We launched the first ever fully dedicated athlete division called Complexity Stars, where we represent and look after nine global athletes that are really genuinely big gamers. Um, what I would say here is, number one, we absolutely believe in the future of esports. We are game agnostic because, as I said, you know, we are reluctant to go and spend $30 million on a game that may not be relevant in 10 years' time when we're actually seeing a reward for, for that investment. Um, but we do believe in esports. We've added in three teams in the last 12 months, but we want to be really prudent in the way we do that. Um, these are economically viable teams that are um, you know, break-even and or profitable. Overall, as an org, we do still burn a little bit of cash. I mean, compared to most, we're, we're really well positioned and we are a trajectory of profitability. But the key here is that aggregate following and the ability through bucket two and bucket three to be able to directly monetize those eyeballs. And again, if you're an esports org in isolation, you, you, you don't have the ability to be able to do that internally. So you may be using bucket two and bucket three, they're all outsourced. And so you're losing margin. And if you're you know, direct, directly getting a, you know, brand deals for, for talent, they're already lower margin deals. If you're then outsourcing to agencies and content studios and merch businesses and so forth, your margin's going to be really low. So Bucket One's Complexity Gaming, Gaming and Esports Hub, based here in Frisco, Texas, um, you know, was owned by, by Jerry Jones and the, and the Dallas Cowboys. Jerry Jones and John Goff, two very prominent Dallas businessmen, own about 40% of GameSquare. Uh, they're big believers in what we're doing. They're incredibly uh, helpful, engaged. Uh, we actually have a commercial deal um, in Bucket 2 with GCN, our media and, and agency business, with the Dallas Cowboys. So watch this space there. We've got some really cool stuff coming in terms of helping the Dallas Cowboys be a market leader in terms of what does their next generation of season ticket holder look like? Because they're not necessarily going to football on Sundays. They're at home online playing video games with their friends. How do we reach global audiences for the Cowboys and make them relevant in this space? So Got some really cool stuff cooking there. But that is our gaming and esports org. Not to say we wouldn't look at further acquisitions, but we will look to build within and under that brand and continue to grow out the complexity star and our brand there. Bucket two is, is really our secret source, right? This is our, our media and agency businesses. We have Code Red in the UK, uh, influencer and consulting agency, the original entity to uh, GameSquare. Quarter on quarter growth, really nice business, continuing to grow, cash flow positive, uh, slightly lower margin business due to the kind of nature of influencer type um, business, but works in beautifully with our group and, and cross-selling opportunities. Um, number two is GCN, as I kind of touched on really quickly. Um, media and marketing agency, 
um, compete with the, the big traditional agencies on large RFPs and the highest growth area of our business. Um, you know, 12, 18 months ago, they are you know, pitching and working on, you know, $500,000 to $800,000 RFPs. They are six to eight X now, the level and size of deal that we're seeing and, and working on and translating, you know, really large brands from RFP work into agency of record work. Um, so they create bespoke campaigns and strategies for brands in the space and they execute and bring them to life. Really cool thing is they also have a media network. So that missing piece to get to the 220 million in terms of you know, eyeballs we can reach. We have um, partnership with 75 web properties, super endemic to the space, hardcore gaming and esports bands. So we can reach 115 million gaming and esports bands every month through our media network. We can age gate and target specific audience. So create a campaign, but actually then help you reach that audience that we've told you we would. And it's really powerful, right, when you talk to a brand instead of saying, hey, this is the strategy we think you should go with. Um, this is how many eyeballs live there. We actually guarantee a level of impressions and engagement. Um, number three is Cut and Sew. Uh, these guys are awesome. Uh, I met them when I was at FaZe Clan, uh, young, endemic to the space, work with the MLB, they work with a lot of NBA athletes, real crossover into kind of sneaker culture, sports culture, traditional entertainment. Um, I would think about them as sort of an outsourced marketing and creative firm. So they basically work with brands on strategy. And the great thing is we then have, you know, the groups internally to be able to execute on that strategy. And really nice for a public company to have a um, bit of diversified revenue stream, whereas you know, GCN are going out and, winning big RFPs. Um, Cut and Sew have a lot of really nice retainer work. Um, they work with HyperX and some other big players in the space. Um, so continuing to grow there and um, plugging them in with GCN, it's been beautiful to watch. We're starting to joint pitch some, some really big names in the traditional sport, entertainment, uh, and brand landscape. Um, bucket three is kind of our organic business units that we've grown out that have made sense to continue to grow and scale our model, especially here in North America. And, and then I think we're going to start to kind of scale globally and we can kind of get to that. But this is, um, you know, the last 12 months, um, organic businesses that we've grown out. So it's very lucky to be able to bring over um, the head of content from FaZe Clan, uh, Femi, who, you know, award-winning uh, content creator. I mean, the guy's a genius. He understands this audience and some of the content he's done is just next level. Um, he has been drinking out of a fire hose since we uh, announced Four Frame Studios in March of this year. Um, we have some really exciting stuff coming on that front, but um, this is high revenue growth, already cash flow positive. The inbound we've had is astronomical, but the beauty of Four Frame Studios, right, is that we can oversee the content within our org and all of these different pieces, right, where Cut and Sew, you know, historically might have been um, kicking out five, 600K on these retainer clients to production and content budgets outside the group. We now retain that and keep that in the group. Um, so in incredible there, as well as being able to service the rest of the industry. And it's funny because I get these questions often, like, are you worried about competition? And I'm not at all. I mean, again, if you look at the, the, the revenue, the, the investment dollars, the eyeballs, this is such an enormous 
enormous ecosystem that is still so untapped and still so early in its life cycle that I'm really not worried about competition at all. Like rising tides really do raise all ships. And if we can get if we can get paid to, to rise the ships, then 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 we'll go for it. So the the strategy here with bucket three, we're kind of building out the other two is real capabilities and strategy around you know, Web3 and, 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 our, and our viewpoint into metaverse and strategies there and helping clients position themselves um, as well as our mer- merchant consumer products. And so from a merch consumer products, a Web3 and a content standpoint, the idea is to obviously prioritize and service our existing clients and GameSquare ecosystem first, but it is absolutely to go out to market and, and work with other esports teams, which we're already doing. See, that's where I had a feeling this company was really going. Um, because one of my my next question for you, you know, you mentioned all the different buckets that make up Game Square Esports. But what would you say, you know, this is, you know, some investors or maybe shareholders and potential shareholders are listening to this. But in your opinion, what do you feel is the real growth bucket that folks should really understand and pay attention to? Is, this, is it this idea that you built out this marketing and agency to help these other esports not just access your own internal audience but now you they can engage brands and then they hold you on retainer say okay we're working with them to create whatever the creative is going to be and then push it out to whoever their audiences are totally look the reality is bucket one for us um, because we were a a pure sort of esports performance org um there's still a lot of opportunity for us to grow and scale there. And obviously, as I said, we believe in the future of esports and we think there's upside return. However, there is there is still a ceiling, right? Because you only have so many asset categories and you're an org and you're a brand. And so what we do by bucket two and bucket three is we open up the opportunity to be able to work with every brand and every org uh, and every company in the space. Um, not only can we do that, but it's extremely scalable, right? It doesn't cost you X amount more. It doesn't cost you, you know, the same amount equitably to do a three, $4 million RFP as it does to a $300,000, $400,000 RFP. So it's extremely scalable from that, from that agency standpoint. And the reality is that the fragmented nature of the market is what makes bucket two for us so powerful because everyone's like, well, traditional agencies will just come in and with you know their power and their brand reach stomp on you. But that's not the reality because the and, and authenticity is such an overused word in this space, but understanding strategy here is so important. Understanding where the audience lives, how to reach the audience and, and creating really authentic campaigns to reach that audience is so important. And we've seen, really large-scale traditional brands get ripped apart for trying to dip their toe into gaming and esports. We've seen traditional sports orgs and teams um, lose money on investments because they dip their toe in and they do these one-off ad hoc events. This is not transactional. This has to be a long-term investment where you build out strategy with people who have an innate knowledge of this space and, and audience, and we have that, these specialist skills, right? So we talk about you know, one team being the Game Square Orbit, but hyper-focused specialty skills. And so what we're seeing is not only are we directly working with brands and that part being extremely scalable, as you mentioned, where a lot of our growth is coming from, which is great, right, because it's it's also higher margin, um, 
But, you know, we are seeing a lot of agencies come to us and we're white labeling our services for brands. And, and I think we'll continue to see that because you know, if you think about somebody like a McDonald's who spends you know, $200 million a month on, on marketing, you know, obviously that's not their gaming and esports budget. It's a smaller part of that. But if you're the main agency, are you really going to stick your neck out on a gaming and esports strategy that, you know, it is the, probably the most fickle um, kind of community uh, and the reaction to to campaigns if they're not authentic, if they don't hit the mark. Um, so we're, we're seeing a lot of, of, of partnership with, with agency businesses. Absolutely. Well, because you, you mentioned how, you know, you know, not not so much worried about competition, despite the fact that some of your other some of your competitors are starting to, you know, imitate a little bit of what GameSquare is doing. But then you said that they're still, you know, let's say three to four years behind. Why is that? Because the reality is that so there are a couple there's there's sort of um, talent agencies that are sort of building out content and media capabilities, but they don't have an esports org, so they don't have necessarily the amount of eyeballs or ability. Or, or amount of brands that they're touching internal to, to cross-sell. I think, like, using sort of live examples and case studies is probably the best example. So for us right now, we have um, – so Lenovo uh, at Complexity is our, our biggest brand partner sponsor. Their name is on our, our physical performance centre at the Star and Crisco, which is across the road from the Dallas Cowboys, obviously the you know, highest-value sporting organisation in the world, so that helps. Um, but Lenovo, we've got them in um, as a partner of complexity and got to obviously build that relationship and understand their needs and capabilities. And so, you know, at the moment, we're looking at ways to build out strategies for them in the metaverse through our Web3 capabilities. We're looking at ways to enhance their content through our content studio. We are looking at ways to be able to upsell them in specific areas into our media network. Um, so you can kind of see these cross-sell opportunities. Another one is Dairy Max. Dairy Max has been uh, a, a sponsor of ours and a sponsor of the Cowboys. Um, we've been able to continue to renew that for more dollars because of you know, the growth of our audience and, and who we're hitting. But by having them come into the business, we've understood that they really need a, a new agency and need to shake things up. And now Cut and Sew is their agency of record. So we're getting paid you know, multiple ways through uh, bringing these brands into the Game Square ecosystem. So you know, really building this one-stop shop for brands in the space is powerful because brands can come in at any point along the value chain um, and be able to connect with audience um, as well as for us, not only are we getting more opportunities across the business, but on larger scale projects, we can utilize all of our internal skills to keep all of the margin in-house. Absolutely. So I'm gonna ask this question respectfully. You know, but but I have to ask, you know, you mentioned how Jerry Jones and the Goffs, they're collective owners, about 40 percent of GameSquare, you know. But when we look at GameSquare, you know, you're growing business, you're microcap, you know, sub, I think as of today, 50 million market, I think maybe even sub 30 million. Um, you know, is this, is this more... Like, I mean, Dallas Cowboys is the number one sports franchise in the world, right? You know, and gaming and esports 
has been something that's been talked about for a while. You have that kind of, you know, mainstream sports institutional support. You know, why is the company at where it is today? Is it more symptomatic of where the industry is or is it just, or, or are you guys still growing? You know, help, help me, help me, help me understand that. Yeah. I think there's a few factors and, and look, they've been pretty frustrating, but um, the reality is that you know, as a business, this is really year two for us, right? So um, we RTO'd in October of 2020. I joined in Jan of 2021. Uh, 2021 was, was year one. We did um, obviously quite a bit of M&A. Um, and then the, the real objective of year one was to uh, bring in the right resources, centralise a revenue unit that can go and sell. It was to, to um, cross-sell cross and prove out the model um, and, and I think we started to do that. So in year one, we did I think roughly 12 million in revenue Canadian. Let's call it 9 million US. Um, year two, this is year two, right? We're halfway through year two. So look, I, I have to get reminded of this all the time because uh, I'm probably the most impatient human being on this planet and, and I, I, I want to grow this thing aggressively. But proving out the model and, and being somewhat handcuffed in terms of share price, but for a few reasons, and we'll touch on that, um, has kind of been a little bit of a blessing in disguise because it's it's helped us concentrate on more organic growth, getting things right, building our business units, getting the model right that we can now scale through additional M&A and through additional you know, organic growth. Um, the, re you know, the reality is we modelled out $20 million in in revenue for year two, which is over 100% revenue growth, which I think any business would, would give a big tick to. Um, we've updated revenue guidance twice this year, most recently by 20%. We're now earmarking 30 million US in revenue off the back of 9 million last year. I think you'll continue to see bigger and bigger wins from us. Um, in terms of where we trade today, I think the beautiful thing for me is the support of John Golf and Jerry Jones and stop looking at the share price because we're building this thing into a multi-billion dollar business. They believe that, I believe that. Um, so where we trade today is not important. It would be important if um, you know, I had to do an M&A deal tomorrow or I had to raise capital tomorrow, and neither sure. of the case. Um, we, we were able to do a $5 million line of credit deal with the Goffs and Joneses earlier in March and so continuing to, to put more and more money into to the business because of understanding where the market was at and what was coming in terms of you know, discussion around a recession, potential world war, the cost of everything going up, interest rates and, you know, going up and micro caps just getting smacked. Um, the biggest frustration for us is not just obviously, you know, those external market factors, it's the fact that, you know, in all, in all reality, we're not a Canadian company, right? So we are traded on a foreign exchange. Um, we are OTCQB listed, so you can buy the stock in the US. But it's, it's not readily available, right? You're not jumping on Robinhood with the ability to buy GameSquare. And so because of those factors, we haven't spent a huge amount of money or time um, pushing uh, too much into the US and wasting bullets just yet. The concentration has been head down, get the model right, get the fundamentals right, scale the numbers. And I'll tell you what, by the end of the year, as we continue to to put up the wins we are and we tell market that the numbers we're doing, we're going to be in a very, very different position. So for us, there's, there's a few things. One is, you know, we've we've really done five earnings calls to market, right? So 
not many and, and not many of those are the fully cons- consolidated company. Uh, we've got our, our Q2 earnings coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. So looking forward to that um, and looking forward to Q3 and Q4 and really telling market about where we're at. And we feel confident things are going to start to turn quickly. Um, we are on a real path to an uplisting in the US. Um, that's very much on our radar. I know if you sit here and just look blankly at market cap or, or share price today, it might look um, like a far reach, but it's really not with um, you know, the revenue that we're doing, the shareholder base that we have, the contacts and networks that we have. And, and the, the reality is once we you know, uplist to, to NASDAQ or NYC, whatever that looks like, um, to be able to really start utilising and calling on the Goffs and Jones's family offices and, and deep investor networks, our banking partners, um, some of the other largest shareholders that we have on our cap table, we're going to be really, really well positioned. So definitely a little frustrating today. Uh, I mean, if you look at trading multiples, we're, we're wildly undervalued to, to any of the comps in market. But, I mean, it doesn't bother us too much. I think, you know, the, to, to me, that's just – it just smells of opportunity, right? Sure, uh, sure. And, and we're just going to continue to execute, continue to over, um, over deliver, and and be really well positioned as we uplist to, to to scale really quickly and, and get the share appreciation um, that 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 we deserve. For sure. And you know, another question I have, and I probably should ask this even before that. You know, I mean, look, Jerry Jones and and the Goffs probably have their pick of the litter of who they want to work with to to actually enter this space. Why did they pick GameSquare? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I'm actually having dinner with Travis tonight. So for, for those listeners who, who don't know who the Goffs and Jones family are, it's probably more likely they know the Joneses um, you know, through, the, through the Dallas Cowboys. Um, but a little bit of kind of history there. Um, you know, the, look, the, the Goff family are, are every bit as impressive as the Joneses, not not quite as public, um, but the, the, the Goffs are represented on our board by Travis Goff, who's the president of Goff Capital. Um, I think roughly $9 billion in, in assets uh, in, the, in, the, in the portfolio under Goff Capital. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong, Travis. I think it was something like that last time you spoke. Um, and, and obviously the Jones family being, being the owners of the, the Cowboys, uh, they're represented on the board by Tom Walker, who's the CFO of the Dallas Cowboys and the CFO of the Jones Family Trust. Um, I'm not paying window service to this. They one of the one of the things when Travis called me, I originally wasn't very interested. He said, "Look, come out to the facility and check it out and see what you think." And the facilities that we have, our complexity, the access we have to the Cowboys, it is incredible. Um, they have been uh, unbelievable uh, to to us. Um, they are obviously heavily invested in. In what we're doing and believe in what we're doing but the access that we've had across the road with the cowboys i mentioned that we're about to kick off a really big program with them that we think can be absolutely market leading highly monetizable over time and something we can scale out to traditional sports orgs all over the world um but they have been really clued in so um travis and john i i i believe this to be true heard actually heard me speaking on a podcast about you know, my time at Faceland and my vision at Game Square and what I wanted to do. Um, at the time, they had a couple of offers um, uh, to buy Complexity Gaming, actually for, for more money than we ended up doing our deal. It was an all-stock deal and they actually put more money in. Um, and 
they identified with there being limited opportunity for growth and scale with a pure esports org. And they loved this larger ecosystem that GameSquare was. And, um, you know, I guess they were betting on the jockey in a way uh, with my experience at Pays and actually showing that I can truly, you know, monetize this industry and grow out, you know, revenue streams. So um, that was kind of the, the background there. And, you know, as part of the deal for me, what was important was, for them to put more money in to show that, hey, this isn't an all-stock deal and we're kind of walking away and, you know, hope it works out, but we're all in and and they've, they've put in money at two additional points. And I speak to Travis multiple times a day. We work on deals together. We talk to brands together. Uh, he, he's been an incredible help. Tom Walker, obviously, you know, having Tom on the board um, with his experience being CFO of the Cowboys and the Jones Family Trust, it's just been amazing. So I think... That was really important and, and getting a commercial deal with the Cowboys, I think was really important. There's obvious links between complexity and the Cowboys with the common ownership and the logo, but there's no commercial agreement in place. And the commercial agreement's not with complexity, it's with our media and marketing business who's building out strategy for the Cowboys in the space, as I said. So that was kind of the, the background, but I would say um, they are, they've been incredible um, to say the least. And I think, will be more and more important as we uplist to the U.S. and as we continue to scale. Absolutely. And, and thank you for that. So a, a few more questions that I want to hit. I, listen, I feel like we could go on for like two hours, but I'll try and get you out of here. So, you know, you enjoy your Friday a little bit here. But, you know, it, you mentioned that you're not, again, you have, you're not too worried about competition, which, hey, if you're going to be not – running the ship. I appreciate that. Right. Like you just, you want to head down focus. We're going to, I believe in our vision. I believe in our thesis. Let's just go. But in your opinion, what, what would you say are some of the company's downside risks? Yeah. I mean, look, we've been going through it, right. That's, that's sort of some external factors. We, we are today, we're still traded on a foreign exchange. Um, we are a, a micro cap. Um, there are, you know, there's some pretty tough, markets out there, what I would say is, look, some people are talking about gaming being recession-proof. I'm not sure I completely buy that, right, unless you're making the video games and creating the, the consoles. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I completely agree with that, especially when you know, we are um, at the forefront of connecting brands and fans. Um, but what I would say is, you know, through this time, with our pipeline has continued to grow. And look, there, there's been a couple of brands that have um, reduced scope or budget because of external factors to them in supply chain and costs and, and so forth, as we all understand. Um, but the overall magnitude of deal size and what um, the amount of money that, that companies are now spending in this space, they've just multiplied. And, and not, I'm not talking since five years ago. Year-on-year year multiplication of revenue. I saw it a phase when we re-up a deal. I'm seeing it at complexity. I'm seeing it across the agency businesses. So, look, there's external factors that uh, you know, are always pose sort of downside risk, right? I think we've kind of gone through some of the worst of that, and I think we've held up really well. So, you know, stock price didn't there for a little bit. We we we, we definitely dropped, but you know. If you've been seeing lately, we've had really nice volume and a lot of really good support. So I think there's a bit of sentiment back in the market and we're starting to move back really nicely. 
I think my kind of answer to that, and I sort of talked on it before, is that we have shareholders that are very long what we're doing, uh, which is which is you know very very helpful, um, and that we are keeping our heads down and concentrating on the growth of the business and and the fundamentals and how we scale it appropriately. Um, in terms of kind of competition factors, look like any business, right? It's about being at, being at that forefront, the risk of losing talent to other orgs and so making sure that you have the right talent managers in place for showing that they care, that are people first. Um, it's making sure that you're at the forefront of new trends and things that are moving, whether it be Web3 and Metaverse, and making sure, you know, I think our kind of strategy in a lot of these spaces is walk before you run, right? We're not going and spending these huge investments in these new speculative areas. Where because we already have you know, so many brands in the ecosystem, we're talking to brands every day, we're understanding what they want, and that's actually helping us form some of the strategy around these additional services because we're underwriting some of these additional services, whether it's merchant consumer product, whether it's Web3, whether it's content, with brand deals and revenue from day one. So it helps us scale appropriately. But, yeah, look, I think, you know, we're continuing to see more and more brands enter the space, and that means there's going to be more and more companies and more and more competition. So, you know, ensuring that we're at the forefront of that, um, you know, we have a very, very talented team. Um, you know, I put our team up against anybody in the space, um, but continuing to make sure that, you know, we are looking at new talent, that we are at the forefront because things evolve quickly. So it's not about, hey, we're posting these big numbers, we're great. We're going to sit back and let it roll in. It's con continuing to be at the forefront. So they're the main things. I, I'm from a competitive landscape. I'm not concerned about other esports orgs. I mean, there's so many kids consuming live esports. Um, you know, for us, we're, we're already working with um, three big esports orgs across that bucket three, right? With merch, consumer products, and content. Um, we expect that to grow. We want it to keep growing. Um, I want TSM, 100 Thieves, Space Clan to keep putting out really cool content in the space because it makes these traditional you know, media platforms, companies, brands stand up and take notice. And that's only beneficial for us. Absolutely. So, you know, you also mentioned earlier that the company has uh, upped guidance a couple of times. I think, Corey, I, I think you either said here or, or it's also in your presentation that you've announced revenue guidance uh, somewhere between 27 and a half to 30 million for, for this year. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, right? It's 20, 27 and a half US, 30 million. We, we upped it 20% uh, on our prior guidance. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, what, what, what do you what what do you, what does the company need to do to get to that profitability? And how are you balancing that growth then and also profitability here? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So um, as we sit here today, I'd say the complexity bucket one makes up for about one third of our revenue, um, and then bucket two and three being being two thirds. That's really bucket two and bucket three are high revenue growth, cash flow positive. There's obviously parts of bucket three that are very early in their stage and so we're putting more money in now, but you know, will be profitable really quickly. So um, through those media agency businesses, as I talked about, there is just huge opportunity to scale. Um, you know, these RPs are continuing to grow. 
It's taking these RFPs from one-offs to longer form, re- you know, growing our recurring and reoccurring revenue bases. So what I would expect to see, right, on this path to profitability is that, you know, two and three grow exponentially. One's going to continue growing from an overall dollar figure, but as a percentage, you know, complexity won't be making up for one-third of our revenue on a move-forward basis. And that higher margin area of our business that we scale, that gets us to profitability. Now, look, we could be profitable tomorrow, but you, you raise a kind of good point, a good question, balancing up growth and profitability. For us now, like in my mind, as long as we're on the trajectory to profitability, we're being really intelligent about the way we grow and scale. I'm not concerned about profitability, right? And that is we want to get to scale and prove out the model and we don't want to we don't want to stunt growth um, just to put up profitable revenue. So it's about growing um, intelligently that kind of walk before you run approach. In some in some cases, to me, it's getting to a scale of you know fifty million in revenue, and to me, that's kind of the magic point of like profitability, um, <clears throat> given you know our modeling and where we're kind of at. Look, we're on a pretty aggressive path to get there pretty quickly. We have profitable months. Um, There's a potential for a profitable quarter. We haven't given guidance around it. Um, So so we'll see. But I'd say we're very cognizant of intelligent, scalable revenue growth. Profitability is in um, our future and, and, and in the near future, not in this kind of, yeah, you know, we'll be profitable and you keep kicking the can down the road. That's not the case. But, you know, I think you raise a good point. We don't want to start growth. Um, we're not going to cost the company just to get to profitability. Um, we want to hit scale. And from there, you know, world's our oyster, right? I think we're proving out this model in North America. We already have a presence over in the UK. I kind of touched on this before. But ahead of European operations, Jan Newmaster, I mean, he is incredible, Um our head of European sales, Lauren Baines, they both got great backgrounds. I mean, Jan's agency background, he built the media and uh, esports commercial business at Man City, City Football Group. So uh, our infrastructure over there is, is ready and, you know, we are looking at ways to kind of scale and grow out uh, our similar capabilities that we have here. So, look, there's a lot of growth in our, in our future and, and profitability is certainly, you know, front of mind. Very good. And then, you know, where do you see the, in your opinion, where do you see the company in three to five years? And what would you say are the inflection points that will get Game Square to that point? Yeah, I think the first, second, third, fourth uh, catalyst inflection point, whatever we want to call it, is is a major US listing, right? We're starting to get real eyeballs on the story, but there's an opportunity to get a lot more. And then the ease and ability to buy equity in the open market, as well as, you know, really starting to pull on our networks and our, our marketing levers in the US and, and even things like using that 220 million audience to start understanding the story and the stock rather than just the, the esports and the game. I think that's that's kind of the most important, um, you know, inflection point moving forward for us right wow. now. What do you mean? Why? Well, because uh, I mean, I, I, you're you're growing organically, right? Like you're continuing to scale the business in in all the different things. So, I mean, won't 
I mean, most cases, usually just the stock, it kind of just takes care of itself if you just continue to perform. So how come that, how come that point is, is more important? Cause it sounds like you're going to do it no matter what you're going to do the uplist and all that kind of stuff. But like, it, why, 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 it, why? It's that's, well, I mean, that's what's going to materially change the market cap of our company. Right. So we can talk about the, the business in a second in terms of the scalability and growth of the business and things we need to take care of. We're already taking care of that. Our, our, our only real kind of, I guess, frustration at the moment is, as you said, is around market cap and share price. And the reality is that we're quickly becoming one of the biggest revenue companies on the CSE. There's a huge amount of limitations to the CSE. So the reason why the importance of being at one, two, three, and four is that we're a US company and it's hard to buy the stock in the US. So to me, it's like, it's a really obvious one. Um, the ability to be able to get more and more eyeballs on the stock, to be able to buy the stock, that's our biggest frustration and pain point right now. Um, that will be a, a really big catalyst for us. Uh, our move uh, from a pure North American-based company to a true global company is, is from a business perspective, um, you know, the next inflection point, right? It's building out the GCN and cut and sews of the UK and throughout Europe and our gateway there. It is understanding and cracking the Asian market. It is being able to grow and scale our company globally. So we're proving it out really quickly in North America. There's huge opportunities to do that globally. Um, that's very much front of mind. Um, and, and look, there's we're kind of you know building this to, to the point where you know, it's not going to run while we sleep, but, you know, the, the U.S. business is at a really good point. There's, there's huge growth opportunity still, but we're getting to a point where, you know, it is very scalable in, in, in different markets. So I think that's going to be in, in our, you know, um, very near future and, and three to five years' time. I mean, I think we're going to be within that period um, the first publicly traded gaming and esports company on NASDAQ you know, doing north of you know, 100, 200 million in revenue that is materially profitable, scalable. Um, and I think we're going to reap the, the benefits of, of being that, being that market leader in terms of, you know, revenue growth that, that is in fact profitable. Very good. And, and listen, I only ask that because, you know, it, it's interesting when like you sometimes, sometimes you hear that when in doing interviews with management teams and, you know, I, I always, I always like to question if that's, you know, the number one, like understanding why that is. And it, and I think you, you pretty much answered that and understanding that, yeah. you know, the, the business is kind of, it, it's, we're already very much focused there and, and we're very young in our life cycle. And, you know, it, so that, that's really why, I, that's really why I asked that. No, 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 I, I totally understand. I mean, you know, but- from the business standpoint, I mean, yeah, again, you'll start to see through, through these earnings calls coming up, we, we are proving the model out. Our pipeline is huge and growing. Um, you know, the scaling into um, new, new uh, geographies makes sense and, and becoming a true global business with this model, we proved that in North America makes sense. Um, my point around the stock being one, two, three, and four, that's the other channel, right, being the capital markets channel, which we've sort of talked about. That's, that's really at the, at the moment, that's the pain point. We don't have a huge amount of pain points from a business perspective, but the, the reality look also is that there are certain U.S. investors that just don't invest in or touch Canadian trading stocks. 
Well, I guess I guess my main reason with asking that, I mean, and this is, of course, from what you can tell us, you know, uh, don't want to get too much into whatever, you know, you talk about internally. But I mean, it sounds like there is a, a bit of, of M&A potential, you know, as you continue to scale. And clearly, that's always much easier to raise the capital in order to do that when you're on a, a, a you know, NASDAQ or NYSE. So is that kind of the thought process as well? Look, that's that's part of it. I think the the reality is that you know, we've had um, great reaction to our story in the U.S. and there's, there has been a lot of comments around. Let us know once once you're here, and 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 that's the reality, right? Is to start having you know, really large volume um, and and an ability to be able to move the stock quicker based off of financial results that. You know, really does then help you and gives you the ability to be able to do M&A. The reality is in the past 12 months, we've been completely handcuffed because we're on a foreign exchange. There's been external market factors. We're a micro cap. So it's kind of this, you know, it, it makes it tougher. So um, they're, they're really, you know, besides the fact that we inherited, you know, a shell company that was on the CSE, there's really no need for us to be traded um on the, the Canadian Stock Exchange. So there's limitations with it. It's been you know, great for us in terms of um, the, the commercial benefits of being on the CSE and the ability to be able to um, acquire companies um, you know, easier. There's less reporting requirements, things like that, that have helped us grow and scale quickly. We're a grown-up business and we're doing material revenue that's going to be more and more material very quickly. Um, and as such, you know, we should be on an exchange that can help uh, reflect that easier. Gotcha. All right. So to close, I've taken up a lot of your time. I got one more question for you, you know, to close this out here today, you know, your public company CEO, what's your experience been like so far? It's been only, I think, what, like about a year and a half, two years. So what's, what's been the experience like? It's been incredible. I mean, the experience I had a base plan, the CFO of a private company that was scaling and growing so quickly raising money, being at the coal face of, you know, this growth in the industry and proving out revenue streams was, was incredible, was incredible learning experience. This has been another notch altogether, right, and that has to do with that public, um, public company experience. Um, being the CEO of a public company, having a report card, you know, every three months, being so accountable to what you say, and that part of it I love, right, the, it's the part that I think, um, you know, the, the disparity between private and public companies in the U.S. is is so great in terms of what's required. You can just go sell someone on your story. That's fine and great, but, like, you know, you are what you do, and I think being able to, to do that over and over, um, yeah, it's been a steep learning curve, <laughs> a lot of long nights, um, but, you know, I, I love what I do. I'm so passionate about this company. Um, I'm so convinced that we're on the right path and that we're building a juggernaut. So, you know, that keeps you you're fired up and motivated. So, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. Very cool. All right. With that, where can our audience go and find more information on GameSquare Esports? Yeah, so gamesquare.com on our investor page. I and mean, obviously, we post all of our you know, um, press releases on there, our investor decks on there. Um, you can cruise around the site and see a bit more about the company. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're super excited about where we're headed. Very cool. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate you answering all my questions. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward to our next update. Awesome. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.